When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. That is Briscoe. I am Bradshaw, and we are thrilled. We've been wanting to get this gentleman on our show for quite some time. He was a 13-time tag team champion with Mike Graham. He was a 19-time in CWA and Mid-South, Memphis, Nashville, Tennessee wrestling as part of the Fabulous Ones in Stam Lane tag team champion. He has done it all in his business, and he's trained most of the guys and girls that you see out there today. He's a great guy. We're excited to have him. Steve Kern, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, guys. I'm excited to be on. I'm humbled by all of that. Well, you got your alligator behind you there for those that have missed it. So that's, <laughs> that's oh all. yeah, that's one. Let's see, that's one of them. I killed fifteen the first harvest, so I uh, I set the state record, but there was no records before that. <laughs> so I killed ten over twelve feet long. So Steve, can we get the scanner down. on? Can we get the scanner on a little bit later and donk on a little bit later too? Do you have them access to those guys anywhere? Skinner, yeah, I can find him. I can dig him up. Okay, don't you? I saw where you spelled doink D O N K Briscoe. You are slipping, bro. I mean, you know, I wasn't sure if that was donk or doink. (laughs) I'd rather talk about him. When Jerry, when Jerry had the heart attack, I called down to check on him and his wife, you know, beautiful wife, Barbara, love Barbara. She says, uh, you know, he's he's learned his words and not making any sense. I said, that's Friday afternoon. (laughs) <laughs> well then he's yeah i was gonna say that's only normal so he must be okay yeah i was she told bruce the first day when i found him in the bathroom he was laying on the floor he was uh, he was drooling and he was incoherent didn't know where he was bruce said that's a that's a sunday a sunday morning <laughs> <laughs> i got all this sympathy here i am laying on the floor dying from stroke and these two guys are supposed to be my friends are making fun of me to my wife. Well, they knew you'd kick out. There's no <laughs> way you sell very long. Remember, I worked against you. It was terrifying. Hey, Jerry, how did that go when he worked against you before down in the Caribbean? Well, uh, we were, we were <laughs> tell me the story you told me before Steve, before Steve came on. <laughs> Steve Kern was a nervous wreck. His partner was Mike Graham, who had a little bit of wrestling experience, so he wasn't nervous. He, he knew we were workers, but Steve, Steve was nervous as hell. And, of course, Gordon Soley does the ring announcing, and Gordon Soley does this 25-minute uh, uh, this introduction of all, all the accolades and everything, and the U.S. Tag Team Kern, uh, 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 champion Mike Graham and Steve Kern. <laughs> and tell the ding, ding, ding. So 
we got to go out to lock up. You know, I want to make it look good because this place is packed. We're out, out in the middle of this damn ocean. They're telling us people have canoed over from other islands and everything just to <laughs> see this entertainment. Remember, they chased us down the runway of the airport and a damn airplane. They literally chased us down the runway. So anyway, Steve and everybody, we're all excited. We got a great, a great crowd. Steve goes to lock up with me. He headbutts me. Down I go. And as I, all I can remember is he takes a step forward. When I go down, he steps right on my hand and breaks my damn hand. So the match hadn't even started yet. I'm knocked out and I got a broken hand. And he's hollering at me. Get up. <laughs> is that what he said? Oh, wait, wait a minute. You forgot the put. You forgot the part where I covered you because it's your unconscious. I thought, well, I get a quick win, and he kicked out. He wasn't <laughs> unconscious. <laughs> of course, he kicked out. Well, well, you know, I mean, Jack and Gerald were my mentors, and I was always nervous when I had to work against them because I don't want to let them down. But I was notorious about being stiff. I mean, you know, I believed it was real, and they didn't. But I tried to convince them. But then I would get stretched. I think I think I got about two inches taller in the program we were working against them. So, you know, I have the utmost respect for those guys. Steve, it, it's a great story. A lot of people don't know. But tell us, kind of fill us in on your start. You know, your, your father being a POW, not only in the Vietnam War, but in the Korean War. Kind of, kind of walk us through that and your relationship with Mike Graham and then Eddie Graham and then starting in the business with with that Tampa crew that John it it, it was kind of like a West Texas crew because it, it was Steve Kern, Mike Graham, Dick Slater, uh, uh, Alan McCord, Dennis McCord. I mean, you get, the list just goes Paul on. Hogan. All Hogan guys have popped out of, a, of, of that 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 generation at the same time. And Hulk Hogan, we all went to and high Hogan. school together. That whole group went to the same high school. We wow. all graduated. And so beefcake. We were all, yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah, I like that big beefcake. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so okay. kind of give us the story that, you know, of your, 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 your introduction and how you, how you got hooked up and all that stuff. And it's yeah, a great no story. Problem. No problem. As a matter of fact, I'll show you real quick a picture. This is my dad right here in the bottom left-hand corner. He's handcuffed and shackled. This, this picture right here is in the edition for World Book Encyclopedia under Vietnam of 1967. But he was the 14th POW in Vietnam. He was the first one ever shot down with a surface-to-air missile flying an F-4. Um, he shot down July 24th, 1965. I was 13 years old. And when I came home from... Um, Uh-oh. When I came home from from school, wait a minute. Right, am I still on? You're still on audio, but you're not on camera. Okay, Ladies and phone, gentlemen, this is phone just some of the in, extra so. bonus attraction that you get from okay. the uh, Briscoe Layfield. Okay, there you That's go. Sorry, nice. I had a phone. I had a phone call coming in, so it just kind of blocked me out of there. All I just hit decline. That was beefcake. Hey. That was beefcake. Was calling you. About it. <laughs> it probably was from his toll booth. Every toy lied. Right. So anyway, 
was 13 years old. I come home. It was in the middle of the summer and I'd done something, but I was gone. And when I came home, there was all these staff cars sitting in our, our yard, our driveway. There was air police cars. There was all kinds of military cars. And being a military kid, you know, boom, I knew something was up. But as I walked through the front door, a full colonel grabs me by the arm and I could see my mom over in the kitchen and she was crying and there was a chaplain with her. And the guy kind of drags me down the hall. He says, which room's yours? I said, that bottom one at the back right there. And he goes, sit down. And he put me down on the bed. He said, your dad died today. He was shot down with a SAM missile. His F4 exploded. Um, <clears throat> you're the man of the family today. <clears throat> I said, what? And I started crying. So, you know, he goes, um, hey, dry it up. He said, you can't cry. Your dad wouldn't be proud of you. He said, you got to you got to be the man of the family from now on. Well, at 13 years old, I wasn't sure what the man of the family meant. But at the same time, you know, I said, well, I guess this is it. And so I went three months, three months thinking my dad was dead. And then UPI came out and in 65, they just had these teletype machines that would print pictures. And the Red Cross had picked up a picture of my dad being escorted through the streets of Hanoi. And he was handcuffed and shackled. And my mom, you know, had the picture. I was at school when this happened. And she called and I came back home. And this time the press was in our yard. And when I walked through the door, my mom had this picture in her hand. And she drug me down the hall again. And then we went in the room and she said, don't say nothing. Don't say nothing. Look at this picture. Your dad's alive. Your dad's alive. And now, you know, I wasn't the smartest 13-year-old kid, not the smartest 69-year-old man now, but I'm going like it really puzzled me. I'm going, wait a minute. I thought he died. I thought they confirmed he died. And they said, well, I guess they didn't know. But my dad actually, the, the backseat guy, my dad was the aircraft commander, so he's in the front. The backseat guy got blown up, but my dad ejected. Anyway, they didn't bring him to Hanoi right away. They paraded him around in villages all around Hanoi, and they'd stake him out, and they'd rev up the people saying, this is those war criminals that are dropping bombs, and they let him spit on him and beat on him, and did it for like three months before they brought him to Hanoi. So then when they brought the picture in, because he was the 14th POW, the United States didn't really know how to handle security-wise the families, and so... My mom had been in the Navy, so she was military, and so we didn't say anything. My mom had already called the base by the time I got home, and when when I went, when I walked into the living room, all of a sudden, the door flew open again. Now all these air police came in, and the CIA came in, and they ripped all the cameras away from them, took all of their recording equipment, and beat, you know, told the media to leave it. And so when we sat down, they told us, said, listen, we don't know what to do. We really don't know how to handle this. So we'd rather not expose that, you know, your dad's alive and you've identified him and nobody else has identified him. But at the same time, if you expose and say that, then the media, everybody. And he says, because there has never been a war declared with Vietnam, they don't have to uh, um, apply the Geneva Convention and treatment. So. Anyway, that's how the whole Vietnam thing started. But in the meantime, I'm going to school here in Tampa growing up. And when I went to the from junior high to high school, one of the guys in my class in school was Mike Graham. 
And Mike and I really just hit it off. We got, we became buddies and, you know, then he started, I started going over to his house and uh, started working out in his garage. And, you know, Eddie kind of really liked me because I, I think more because of what my dad was doing for his country. And, you know, he started giving me things to do like, uh, part-time jobs. I'd pick up when I turned 16, I started picking up the wrestlers at the airport and driving them around like, you know, Terry Funk and Dory Jr. and anybody, Harley, whoever flew in. And, you know, I started hanging out a little bit with them. And anyway, I didn't have aspirations of being a pro wrestler. I mean, you know, I'd been a fan all my life, but, you know, I started driving them around and I couldn't figure it out. I said, man, they look awful beat up. I mean, you know, I'd see Eddie with his head all gigged up and I'd see him with, he would take and rub a towel until he'd get a mat burn on his face or whatever. But I, I'm going, man, I don't know. I don't know about the wrestling. So I kind of wasn't headed toward wrestling, but Eddie kept giving me things to do. He took me hunting. He took me fishing. He kind of substitute dad me for a long time there. And um, he gave me a job at his youth camp in, when I was 17, where I was just a counselor out at a summer camp. And so he really took care of me. So I was around them all the time. And Mike and I were buddies in school. And so when I went away to college, I went to Jackson, Mississippi, right outside of Jackson, where Ted DiBiase lives in Clinton. And I went to Mississippi College. Well, I got on steroids. And jacked up from 165 to 245. I came home. My mom didn't recognize me. And Mike was getting married and I was in his wedding. And Eddie looked at me and said, oh, my gosh, you ever thought about wrestling? Maybe you ought to be one of the boys and start wrestling. And I'd seen all these guys beat up. And I'm going, no, nah, no, nah, I'm too pretty for that. I said, you know, I'm going to. So anyway, I wasn't doing well in college because at I didn't realize you need prerequisites. That word wasn't in my vocabulary. I said, when I went to college, I said, well, what makes the most money? And somebody told me the doctor, a lawyer, or an Indian chief. Well, <laughs> I knew Briscoe had the Indian chief covered. So I said, well, I want to be a doctor then. And all the courses I took, when I walked in, I was so confused and I didn't have any background. So I just kind of dropped out and ended up in business administration. So I kind of lost interest. And then when I came back home, I went to Eddie and I said, you know, I'm really interested. I think I'd like to try wrestling. Well, it was on then. I mean, you know, we, I would go to the sportatorium and Hiro Matsuda was one of the main guys that was helping train. And I went through torture for six months. I got beat up every day. And I mean, not punched in the face, beat up. I mean, just stretched. Um, we didn't have tap out then. We had, I quit. I give up. And I used that a lot. And I'd come home and my mom would see me and she'd go, wow, what are all those marks on your face and your body? And I said, I'm learning to wrestle. And she goes, well, I thought that was fake. I said, so did I. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm learning is not what I'm watching on TV. So anyway, that's how I really broke into the business. And after six months of just sticking with it and not quitting, and believe me, I wanted to quit so many times, but I was so confused in my life being, you know, without a dad that I just said, I can't quit. I'm too embarrassed to quit. And then all of a sudden started working. I learned a handful of moves and went to work doing 15, 20 minute broadways with guys old enough to be my grandpa that led me through it. 
started teaching me right there in the ring. I learned by experience. I'm sorry, that was long, but I tried to tell you the whole story. Oh, Steve, that was one of the great things about Florida. Eddie had, you know, he had such a mix. He had the old timers down to teach guys like me and you and even Jack. When Jack came down, that's what Jack was, you know, booked with all those old times, the Pedro Godoy's and uh, Juan Sebastian's. But those guys, Eddie had them here for a reason. They were such wonderful teachers. It was the same thing in Dallas, John, when you started with Bronco and all those guys out there, Lubish and all the all the guys they had out there. Those old timers kind of knew how to how to how to how to share the knowledge. And those old timers that were there, they knew the reason they were there. I mean, they would get they would get a little upset sometimes with a guy like Mayor You and try to push the limit, you know just to show us that it's not all, you know, puffy face there. And they, they would get on you and they would, they would get, put their weight on you and stretch you a little bit. Right. Oh, absolutely. And they were always saying the same thing to me. Slow down, slow down. <laughs> I heard that. Sit still for this. This was one of the favorite lines from them. Sell this kid. I mean, you know, so, but at the same time, you know, when I got old, I got it. I understood. They didn't want to be bounced around and bumped around by a green guy. And in those days, the traditional thing for being green was about a five-year run that they you were always considered green for your first five years, even though you wrestled like eight or nine times a week constantly. By the time you'd wrestle five years, you got 15, 2,000 matches, whatever. And so, you know, but I used that green thing for 15, 20 years when somebody would say, man, what's wrong? You're stiff. I said, man, I'm still green. He said, you've been working 15 years. I said, well, I'm still trying to use the green deal. When I was in Dallas, I was working with Black Bart. I just got started, and I got Skandor Akbar as my manager. And so Bart is telling me, he goes, you're tatering me. You're tatering me, you greenhorn piece of shit. You're tatering me. I didn't know what he was saying. I, I know what Tater was. And so finally he waff, I mean, waffles me, hits me about as hard as he can with a club right across the forehead. He goes, that's a receipt. And I took a, a bump and I rolled out to Ack. I said, Ack, I don't know what he's talking about. I, I said, what's a receipt? He goes, that means he loves it, kid. He wants you to give him a receipt back. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so I rolled back in. <laughs> oh, my God. It was yeah, awesome. man. There was a lot of parts about learning to be a wrestler in those days that were left out. You had to learn it by experience and you had to fail forward a lot just to get the idea of what was going on. And you never knew, you never knew who was telling you the truth or who was bullshitting you. So I would let it go in one ear. And if I didn't buy it, I'd let it come out the other ear. And one of those statements was save your money, kid. And I'm going, wait a minute, I'm only making $40 a night. I'm driving like 2,500 miles a week. I don't, I don't, I don't know what kind of money you're talking about saving and where, you know, so anyway, but it was well worth it. I mean, you know, to me as a guy that taught, I kind of, I, I kind of single people out and, and it all fell under the simple word of passion. If I felt that they had a passion for what they were doing, they were going to learn. Eventually, they're going to learn whether it was with us or experience in the ring. But when they were just kind of like seeing what what is going on, like they'd been a pro football player or an elephant jockey or something like that before, now they want to be a wrestler. You know, it's kind of the handwriting was on the wall to me. But 
anyway, it was and back then it was definitely a passion. Once you were hooked, especially me, once I was hooked, it didn't matter what I made. I was going to wrestle the rest of my life or halfway through it anyway. So Steve, during this time, all this time you were getting started and Eddie was kind of filling in as your kind of your surrogate father uh, for a lot of reasons. You know, people have such a patriotism to the fact that your dad was a war hero over there stuck by the, the, the Vietnamese in some prison. Uh, did at I'm sorry, Jerry, Jerry just clicked out on me and I'm not sitting there distracted. So the, the story of your dad to me is so interesting. I remember being in WWE and you talking about it and the, the book that Bye. I've written about it and uh, trying to get him the Congressional Medal of Honor. How often did you hear back from your dad uh, per year? And that <clears> time <throat> you finally got to see him. I read somewhere that you'd done an interview that you uh, carried him off the so tarmac because he was 25 pounds at the time. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, the answer to the question, how often did we see him or hear of him? Um, I, we got a total of seven letters in, in seven and a half years, and they weren't one a year. It just kind of came sporadic. And one of the things, John, is we had to go to the mailbox. And if we saw a letter coming from my dad that are you guys still with me? My I'm with you. Gary's having problems. He, he always has problems. He's from Oklahoma. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't want to talk if I'm off the air totally. So no, no, anyway. no. You're, you're on air. Jerry's not, but okay. that's good for the show. One of the, uh, one of the rules we had with getting mail from my dad was when we saw a letter in the mailbox from him, we weren't allowed to just reach in and grab it. We'd have to actually put our hands in and kind of hold it by the edges of the letter and, and, and kind of balance it in there or else put gloves on and get it out. And then they would come, the military people would come and open the letter themselves at our house. And they would, you know, go over it and over it, take it with them, whatever. But they would make sure my dad's fingerprints were on it. They would make sure that what my dad was saying in the letter was decoded because that some of them didn't make any sense. But my dad was actually releasing names of other POWs by a code that they were tapping through the walls with their little tin cups. And they were telling, you know, who was in there because it, the Vietnamese people weren't releasing all the names of all the POWs. So they were trying to communicate through these letters that we got. Now, because my dad was one of the oldest and had been a prisoner in Germany and two-time POW, he was always kind of featured on any video that they would send, like they were uh, pretending to decorate Christmas tree at Christmas time, or they were opening up packages that had been sent by family members to get supplies and stuff. And it was all propaganda. He never got any of that. He and he really didn't decorate any Christmas trees. It was just a setup. But being that the war was like it was and never a declaration of war, they didn't, like I said, they didn't have to abide to the Geneva Convention. So it was all, it was all anything goes. And my dad wrote a book and I'll get your email and I've got it on JPEG. If you'd like to read it, it's not exciting and it's not drama and it's not based on sympathy. My dad was the real deal. He was the John Wayne professional soldier, and he didn't want any sympathy. He was doing his job, and after it was over, there was no remorse. But when he wrote his book, he just tried to hand down the story of his and my mom's life 
um, to grandchildren or great grandchildren or whatever, but to pass it on. So it, it's it's not one of those Arnold Schwarzenegger stories, but at the same time, I've read other POW books and I know exactly what my dad went through. I know all the torture. He was tortured relentlessly and they they would torture him at the beginning to get any information about the fighter that he was flying, the F-4. It was the fastest one the United States had. And then also to get any information on any other military aircraft. My dad, I think he was flew something like 82 different aircraft while he was in the military between World War II and, and Vietnam. And so he was had a high knowledge of not only war, but he had a high knowledge of military aircraft. So they they tortured him relentlessly. And the the tortures, anybody can read about Vietnam through different books, but I've got a few people that have sent me books that actually paralleled my dad's capture for when he was first shot down he um he had a big piece of shrap metal in his leg and they they caught him and then they drug him around like i said and would tie a chain around his neck and stake him out in these little villages and let him torture him and then they finally brought him to vietnam it was he was like a trophy and so then they'd break they brought him into hanoi but once he got there it got worse because at um, solitary confinement was their main thing and a psychological torture. He had a light bulb in his room. He slept on a, a concrete block bed with no pillows, no nothing. He could only sit on the edge of his bed until he was brought out into the um, yard to do a few exercises, then went back in. And then he would sit on his edge of his bed the rest of the day. If he moved, they would come in and they'd beat him with a bamboo pole with a um what is that uh, fan wheel? What is that rubber thing? That belt of uh, a fan belt tied to the end of the rubber pole. And then, you know, everything was regimented. He had no windows or anything. And my dad has credit for creating the tapping on the wall because he didn't use Morse code. He knew they'd be smart enough to understand Morse code or they'd figure it out. But my dad created a code that he was an unbelievable mathematician and he created this code that they used for the rest of the war. And so he would tap on the wall, you know, morning, God bless and simple things, but, you know, not enough to grab attention because anytime they thought you were communicating at the very beginning, they would take you out and torture you. And they had a place called the quiz room where they would take you in there and, and torture you relentlessly. And I mean, you know, my dad, my dad was smart enough to know that don't tap out and give in right away, you know, show that you have the, the heart and the guts to stand it because they wouldn't respect you unless you did. So he would take the torture to till he couldn't take it anymore. And then finally he would just, you know, whatever you want to ask, he'd ask, but they would just give him lies. I mean, he just lied to him. In 1967, that picture I showed you where he's being marched through the streets of Hanoi, they were going to execute him. My dad was the first one in line, attacked, um, handcuffed and shackled to another guy. And they took him to a baseball field and they were going to publicly execute all the POWs. They declared them war criminals. Well, the president at the time made a national address. If they shoot the first American prisoner of war, that we will declare full scale nuclear war on Vietnam. So they did a big 
about face and took him back through while the people started rioting. And my dad said they stripped him down naked, ripping at his clothes and everything till they finally got him back. But when they got back to the prison camp, Hanoi Hilton, they took my dad and several other POWs and they tied him to trees and they spread eagled my dad. They tied his feet spread apart. They tied his arms spread apart and they left him there for 48 hours in the elements, the mosquitoes, the, you know, whatever. And they constantly walk by and kick him in the growing and, and, and beat on him. And so the other POWs could see through the slit in the door, see what he was going through. And the other POWs that were out there with him going through that. So He's uh he's he's a pretty big deal so far as in the POW world, you know. So and the time I mean, he, it was it was a terrible time for him, but you would have never known it. He was such a good guy. When he came home, of course, there was a big gap. I saw him the last time at 13 years old. Now I'm 21. And I I was the man of the family at that point. I wasn't sure if I was a good man, but at the same time, I'd taken care of my mother and my sister and you know, try to do the best I can. And then when when he landed, he landed in Maxwell Air Force Base, Montgomery, Alabama, because that was the nearest hospital for POWs when he came home. And when when the, they came to get us with staff cars, we were in um, some guest quarters and they come to my mom and said, OK, only the wives, only the wives. And they said to my mom, says, um, nobody else, just you. We're going to drive you out there. We're going to get your husband, put him in the car, and we'll bring him right straight back. And I looked at the guy. <laughs> I looked at the guy and says, well, that ain't happening that way. And he looked at me and he says, What's, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to be in the damn car. And he goes, no, you're not. No, you're not. No family members. I go, you ain't going to stop me. If you don't let me get in the car, I'm going to walk over to the runway and I'm going to be right there on the runway and I'm going to blow through the security and I'm going to be there with my dad. When he left, I was on the runway. When he comes home, I'm going to be on that runway. And so the Colonel looks at my mom and I remember him saying, have you got any control over him? And my mom just shook her head and said, he's a man. He's going to do what he wants to do. And I agree with him. So anyway, my sister stayed there. But I got in the front seat. Now, this colonel's briefing me the whole way, said, OK, here's the deal. We don't want any confusion. We don't want any chaos. When your dad gets off the plane, because he's a commander, he's going to say a couple words and then he's going to come to the car. I want you to get out and I want you to open the door. That's it. I said, OK, no problem. When my dad got off the plane, he got down and he couldn't say anything because that there were so many POWs left over there that he just said, Old Glory is the most beautiful of them all. And I bolted. I took off running. I ran up to the plane. I scooped him up, bear hugged him, and started running with him. And I was crying. I couldn't even talk to him. I was, you know, it was like I was paralyzed. But at the same time, I had him. And my dad, I can remember him saying in my ear, son, it's you, right? <laughs> is that you? I said, man, you're big. <laughs> and he goes, I hope it's you. And the air police were all over me, you know, and I just was pie facing people. But I got him and I, you know, I'll send you pictures of that sometime if you'd like to see him. It's pretty Love emotional. It. But at the same time, you know, I was in that car and, you know, it was an amazing thing. I, I can't describe how it is when you when you think your dad died at one point and then eight years later, there he is. You know what I'm saying? 
did you lose part of him in Vietnam? You know, so many guys I, over there and tortured and came back and weren't quite the same. And a second question, did, did you ever meet John McCain? I assume that he probably did at least later. Did he meet him in Vietnam as well? Well, they had reunions. They had reunions for POWs every year. And they were at H. Ross Perot's house in Texas. And they'd all go out there and get together. Now, my dad would go to two different reunions, one for World War II, where he was shot down there at 19 and was a POW in Germany. And then he also went to the one for Vietnam. And yeah, of course, he, he knew John McCain. They all knew each other. I mean, you know, uh, my dad had a lot of respect from them guys because he was 39 when he was shot down. It was 20 years separation from when he was 19 shot down in Germany out of a B-17 to Vietnam where he was shot down out of the F-4. Wow. And so as an older soldier being in there and my dad, you know, helped um, other other Vietnam prisoners if, if he had the opportunity at first, the first like five years or four years, possibly it was all solitary confinement. He wasn't allowed to communicate. Then they started getting crowded. They started to be more and more POWs. And so my dad actually started to get a roommate here or there, but some of them needed medical attention. So, so dad had the opportunity to, to know a few more close and personal, and he actually aided in helping some of them. That was part of my premise for the uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, because it, to me, when I attempted to get him the Medal of Honor, I got the book and I got the requalifications from Randolph Air Force Base in Texas for the Medal of Honor. And it basically said bravery above and beyond in the face of the enemy. Well, most men that serve in the military, especially that go to war, usually have a career of about two to three years and are in combat maybe six months total. My dad had been 11 months POW in Germany and seven, seven years and seven months. I mean, uh, yeah, seven years and seven months in Vietnam. So I said, there's no telling how many acts of bravery he did in the face of the enemy. But he did give medical attention to some guys that to this day said they owe him his, their lives. And so I based a lot of it on that. Then I based it on the simple fact is, is his, his total time in the military. He spent one third of his time in the military being a prisoner of war in a foreign country for his country and sacrificing his freedom and being tortured. And so, you know, it just all made sense. But I was turned down. I've got unbelievable correspondence right all the way up to the White House, every congressman, senator, everybody, even Mr. Perot tried to help me. And they turned me down saying that family members can't um, nominate family members for the Medal of Honor. And so I started to turn to some of the military guys, but some of the people that were commanders of him were already dead. Some of them, you know, were mentally a little bit off balance. And so it just didn't work out. And I don't know, he, he was decorated pretty highly, John. He had five Purple Hearts, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star twice, Distinguished Flying Cross twice, and a numerous, numerous amount. While we're talking, I'm just going to kind of like show you real quick down here into this and this kind of gives you an idea if you can bear with this let me know if you can see this all right wow wow those are his medals yes wow yes this is actually the cup he ate in with for vietnam for seven and a half years and 
I have all I have all of the I have his uniform that they had him wear in Vietnam as a POW, and I have the one from Germany also. So I have all of the re- reminders of it, and even the POW bracelets. I know you're old enough to remember when they had POW bracelets for guys in Vietnam and everything. And so, I mean, he was the real deal. And I mean, you know, it's hard for me sometimes. I I've kind of lost an interest in other sports when the, when you know the flag and kneeling and I understand people are trying to make statements but it really hits hard in my family so you know it's just I take it a little bit more personal yeah you had Steve Steve, Steve during all this time I mean that you know, the hardship and I was getting to know you and I you know we would share road trips together and we'd, we'd talk about it so I, I but the thing that Steve Kern John and Steve Kern developed during all this time was a really unique sense of humor this guy is one of the rib masters, <laughs> one of the rib masters of all time. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, the old time rib, but you're speaking with the one, the one down in the corner there that played the rib. So here, here's his dad. You know, a national, national hero. I wanted to meet the man because traveling with Steve, Steve and I had become real close, and. Uh, and I'd heard a lot of stories. So, you know, I was wanting to meet the man after he got released. Well, uh, Colonel moved across the state over on Mel on, on the East Coast side over Melbourne. So uh, we, had, we were having a spot show over there. So Steve knew how bad I wanted to meet Pops. So uh, he said, hey, we're over there. He said, do you want to leave a little bit early? And and uh, and I'll take you by Pops' house and we'll, I'll introduce you to Pop. I said, great, man. I mean. Water, I mean, water through all the way over there. I'm just thinking, man, that's going to be great. I'm going to be, you know, meet a, a, a national hero, you know, uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a heck, 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 heck of a man. So we're driving along. So we go down the highway. And I'm sure you've been in this neighborhood because it's your type of neighborhood where right along the coast and all these mansions, you know, these yeah. big houses. I mean, acreage and acreage and they're all gated got the steel gates and some of them have guard houses there so we come we were passed by steve said now slow down he just moved to this house and i'm thinking man you know the guy was a pow the country i'm really proud of because i'm thinking man the country really did good by this man look what they look what the good old us of a set this man up in you know one of these gigantic ultra front matches he said, turn down this driveway. So I turned real quick. Fortunately, I, I made a little money and I had a, a new little blue Mercedes convertible. So, of course, it's nice here in Florida. I had to, we had to top down. So we're going down this driveway and this driveway, John, is widening and it's landscape like you'd never see. It's like a damn botanical garden. So all of a sudden it opens up and here's this big, huge mansion. He said, pull right up next to the garage and there's the front door. Just I'll wait out in the car, cause, you know, and what well, you can surprise him. You know, he likes this stuff. So I great, Steve. I'm going along. Great, great. This is going to be so fun. So I go up there and I'm ringing the damn doorbell. I'm ringing the damn doorbell. Nobody comes. Finally, I'm ringing. The, he said, pound on the door. He's a little hard here. So I'm pounding on the damn door. All of a sudden, the door opens. <laughs> Here's this real distinguished. I said, Colonel. He said, Colonel. He said, I'm Mr. So and so. I said, You're not Colonel Colonel. No Kerns live here, boy. 
<laughs> I think you got the wrong place. I look around and see him at the car. Steve's there, there. He's dying laughing. He takes me to the wrong damn house. And not a dad. He pulled the damn door. I get back in the car. What did you mean? I said, screw you, Kerr. Boy, he was started. When I started in Dallas, we had a bit of a deal relationship with uh, Tennessee. So we got to, you know, a lot of the guys out of Memphis, not Nashville, Memphis, worked with the Sportatorium. So right. in 93, I'd never met Steve Kerr, but I became his biggest fan. Now, wait, I got to explain. I love Jerry Lawler. He's a good friend of mine. But all we heard at the Sportatorium was Jerry Lawler just got his crown shit in at the Royal Rumble. And they said, I said, you're kidding me. I said, who did it? They go, Steve Kerr's up there. <laughs> you know, I got away with that. I got away with that for about three years because it was me and Kurt Henning were trying to come up with something to do in the dressing room with that damn crown. And we couldn't come up. We got a padlock and put it on there. And then we're looking at it and goes, ah, that's not good enough. That's an old joke, right? So, of all people, I turned to Mr. Fuji. And I said, what should we do? What should we do? And he goes, crap in the clown, crap in the crown, crap in the crown. I go, I don't just crap spontaneously. You know what I'm saying? So we tried and tried. And for some reason, all of a sudden, mud come out of me. I guess it was a blessing or whatever. But I was, I got away with it. Everybody thought it was Kurt for years that it was Kurt Henning. Then Bobby Heenan wrote his second book, and in his second book, he exposed he me. Yeah, I flipped out. I said, Bobby. He goes, well, I didn't know nobody knew. I said, well, everybody knows now. Uh, boy, it's relentless. But you know what? I really enjoyed ribs. I didn't mind them being pulled on me because once you pull a rib on somebody, you better get ready for your receipt. But my best... Well, not with Gerald. Gerald was more of the scuba diving ribs I pulled on him. I turned his air off at 30 feet. I come down I'm behind going him. around, John. I'm bragging. You know, all these guys, are scuba, they're, they're taking their scuba diving lessons. You know, hey, I already got my card as me and Medusa talked. You know, I made my first card, uh, my first dive over in, where'd you go, Kern? You don't want to hear it. <laughs> Over and over on the Great Barrier Reef. So I was an experienced diver and I made sure every all these rookies knew about it. it was Joe LaDuke, Steve Kern, my brother Jack, um, uh, Manny Fernandes. I mean, uh, I can't remember who all was. about a dozen of them. They all, they all decided they're gonna I'm sign certified. Up. I'm certified. I'm certified. They're making their first open water dive. Well, I'm big. I'm certified. I got my card here. <laughs> so we're out there diving. We're, we're going to go down about 35, 40 feet, you know, explore around a little bit and use up a tuck of air so they can say they're open. They got certified open diver, open water divers. So we're swimming around, and all of a sudden, you know, you got buddy partners. Of course, Jack's my buddy. Mike's uh, probably Steve's buddy or somebody. So we're walking around, uh, swimming around underneath. And, you know, you can't see behind you because of all that gear you got on. I'm taking my deep breaths, and all of a sudden, there's something I, I, I go to take a breath of air. There ain't no damn air coming out of my tank. I take another one. Now, we're 35, 40, 50 foot deep down in the damn bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, man. And I'm, 
take another one. I start panicking now. You know, I mean, you, that's one thing when you dive and you, you, you know, you, you, you're trained not to, not to ever panic, but you know, I got no air and I'm 40 foot below the damn surface. I'm panicking. And then not only that I do this, I feel this body jump on top of me and through the mumbling, I could hear two points, two points, two points. <laughs> not only turn my damn air off, but he damn, I jumped on top of it and he scored a damn two points and he let me go. And I'm swimming like crazy. I'm stripping off everything. I get to the top, man. I breathe in that fresh air. Man, as soon as he occurred, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> hey, he was on the bottom, John. He was swimming along down there. He'd been bragging all day, all day. Well, I grew up as a kid. I started diving when I was like 13, 14 years old. But Gerald's got the car. He's, you know, he's the expert. I just came right down on top of him. It says on my card, man. <laughs> <laughs> I come on his blind spot from behind, and you know the valve on your tank is right on the top and the back, and I just slowly turned his air off <laughs> as we were going along the bottom there till it shut off totally. And then I got my two points, and when I <laughs> when he turned around and looked at me, his eyes were so big. He was like he was in a panic mode. And he's looking at me. He's looking at my mouthpiece. He's going, nothing, nothing. And I go, well, go up. <laughs> Get out of here. And so he raced to the top. But it was funny. <laughs> funny to me, not to him. There's nothing like a rib where somebody could actually die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me tell you my best the best of all. And I did a million of them. Today's my favorite day, April Fool's Day. I April fooled so many people. None of my friends answered the phone. And I thought this was a rib, but I even told Gerald this morning, hey, nice rib, April Fool's Day. Uh -huh. Anyway, the best was Kurt Henning because he was a great ribber. Yeah. And he came to Memphis for the very first time. And that's back when there was no security at the airport. You could go out to the airside. I got with the Memphis cops because that I had friends on the police talking to them in the back. They were like the favorite people to talk to for me were the cops in the back behind the dressing rooms because they'd tell you all the cop stories way before um, cops show came out. And I got together with them and I got a warrant for the arrest of Kurt Henning. And we filled it out at the police station for statutory rape. On a 17-year-old on a girl, and her dad was swearing out the warrant. And so anyway, then I got, the, I picked out the biggest cop. He was a big, fat, redneck cop that had a real attitude. We, he went out to the gate, and I'm hiding behind the pole in the airport watching. Kurt comes off the airplane. He's looking around, and the cop walks up to him, and Kurt thought he was a fan. He goes, are you Kurt Henning? And he goes, Yes, sir. And he stuck out his hand to shake his hand. He said, I don't want to shake your damn hand. You're under arrest. And Kurt looks at him and goes, what? He said, you're under arrest. And he goes, what do you mean I'm under arrest? He said, I've never even been to Memphis. And he goes, well, that's not what this warrant says. And he served him with a warrant. Kurt started reading it and he started, his whole face turned red. And when he did, he said, that's, I didn't do this. And he goes, boy, I ain't never arrested a guy that said he was guilty. He said, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either walk out of here handcuffed with me like a man. 
or I'll handcuff you and drag your phony wrestling ass all the way through this Memphis airport. <laughs> Kurt freaked out, right? He was like looking around and I kept hiding. Anyway, he put him in the back of the police car. I ran out, got my car and followed him. He, he drove him like halfway to downtown. And what happened was, was Kurt was in the back and I could see Kurt putting his hands up at the back of the cage, telling the story. And anyway, the cop said he was having a hard time from laughing, but Kurt was saying, I got a wife and three kids. So I got a wife and four kids. And he goes, well, make up your mind. You got three kids and four kids. And, and Kurt was so nervous. He said, I, this isn't right. This isn't right. He says, well, maybe if you call the dad, that's who swore out the warrant. Maybe it's a misidentification, mis uh, mistaken identification. So he stopped at a 7-Eleven. I pulled right up beside him. And when the cop get him out of the back of the police car, he's still handcuffed. And he's saying, okay, you can use that payphone right there and call the dad and discuss this with him. And, you know, I'll, I'll listen to it, but I still got to go book you. Anyway, so Kurt goes, well, can I borrow a quarter? <laughs> and I rolled down the window of my car. And I look up at him, right? And he doesn't even realize it's me. And I go, hey, where are you going? And he looked down at me and goes, oh, man, the shit's on. The shit's on. This guy's got an arrest warrant for me. And I, I got out of the car and I said, let me see it. So I took the warrant. I still have the warrant. I can send you a picture of that, too. But I, I took the warrant and I started reading it. Let's see. Statutory rape. Having sex with an under underage minor. Father reports, blah, blah, blah. I said, oh, here's the judge part. Here's where I signed it. When I said that, Kurt looked at me. He looked at the cop. The cop busted out laughing. And then he started chasing me around that 7-Eleven. We probably made three or four laps before he just broke down laughing. But anyway, <laughs> he was always, always trying to figure out a way to top what I had done to him. And he just kept saying to me, he says, sooner or later, I'm going to figure out a good one. I'm going to figure out a good one and get you. But. I had more guys arrested because that's the best rib. Who's going to argue with a cop? Steve, Steve tell, tell John, tell John about that rib that you and I were talking about the show with a phantom show over Jacksonville that uh, you on uh, April Fool's Day. I was, I was, you and I were discussing. I told John just a little bit about. It. Okay, well, it was April Fool's Day. It was on a Sunday, and I had been dealing with some guy that owned a bar up in Jacksonville and a lot of the indie guys here in Tampa, you know, I was helping them get booked on these shows around the Florida area. And so the guy at the bar had been, you know, giving us all about 200 bucks and some of the other guys, a hundred bucks, whatever. So April fool's day comes up and I know it's coming up on the weekend. And so I call all of these guys and the best was a guy that had a girlfriend that wanted to be a valet. She hated my guts. She just couldn't stand me because she always wanted to go along for the show, but she wanted to be paid. And I said, there's no money for valets or managers. It's just the boys. So anyway, I called the guy and I said, listen, the guy said for having it on a Sunday, he's going to go above and beyond. He's going to give everybody 250, even your girlfriend, he's going to give her 250. And he says the show's at one o'clock on Sunday at that bar that we had wrestled a couple of weeks before. So I had 20 guys total. A couple of them didn't go because they knew me, but 20 showed up. Now they got to the parking lot on Sunday afternoon at about noon. And they sat there until one o'clock and they're thinking, wow, man, if there's, 
you know, they couldn't figure it out. None of them were smart enough to figure out what day it was until finally somebody's going, hey, what is today anyway? And it goes, Sunday. So no, what's the date? And somebody said, it's April Fool's. It's 1st of April. And they go, no, they were 200 miles away on Sunday on their day off. And I went from being a hero. Some of the guys told me about how they were talking about me in the cars on the way up. What a great guy Steve is. Man, can you believe it? He got us 250. Oh, man. And the girl was putting me over, telling me now, telling everybody, oh, I love him now. I love him now. On the way home, the story's all changed. What a dick. <laughs> you know, they're all like hated me. But it's still a good story for him. I said, hey, this is a story you'll get to tell for the rest of your life. <laughs> People just don't understand how different ribs were and life was back then. It was just, you do that now and they, they, people would put you all over the internet. They'd call the, they'd call the police. Yeah. I remember WWE tried to recreate that a little bit, you know, with the boys and everything, but it, it just never really caught on, I guess, but it's just not the same. You know, we spent so much time in cars together. We got to know each other so well. But, you know, after spending a lot of time in cars and getting in dressing rooms, I used to I tell people now when they say, well, what did you do for a living? I said, I was a professional waiter. And they'd go, what? I said, yeah, I was a waiter. And said, you waited on tables and restaurants? I said, no, I waited everywhere. I waited in a car. I waited in a dressing room. I waited at the hotel. I waited on an airplane. I waited at the building. I waited everywhere. All I ever did was do a lot of waiting. And when you're waiting, your mind starts moving around and going, well, we're going to make this more entertaining than just be sitting here waiting. Uh, I, I'm, I've got to like, this is my favorite day, but at the same time, I don't answer the phone today because <laughs> I've got so many people wanting to pay me back. <laughs> Mr. Briscoe got uh, subscriptions to Texas Monthly and Texas Parks and Wildlife for years from somebody. I'm not sure who it was, but he, he got them to his house. Yeah, see, this, this, this is, you know, when I, when I reached my, my retirement age, one of my retirement ages, you know, uh, I, I still had the body shop, and you're familiar with the shop, you were down there a lot, and uh, we pulled you out a few ditches uh, uh, a couple of times. <laughs> you did. And so, uh, and, so and you were with uh, me and Barry, I think, when we went airborne into an orange grove one time, uh, and a little red wagon pickup truck, but... Uh, uh, I, actually John, shot, I actually shot Barry when. Oh, that's right. That's right. I was going to ask you about that because Barry told me. No, yeah, yeah, tell that story. First. Let, let Gerald. No, no. Let Gerald finish the story. Well, no, no, our story Barry, was. I, I sent Jerry I, stuff. I shot him in a leg with a nine millimeter. So. Jerry <laughs> stuff on Thanksgiving. You know, <laughs> thanking him for treating the settlers so well. Sorry about taking their land to Buffalo. I sent him a card on Columbus. I was talking for twenty years. I sent him <laughs> Texas Parks and Wildlife. Texas Monthly, you name it. I signed him up for a retirement home in Texas one time. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I used to go to the body shop, as you know, and all of a sudden, you know, our secretary, uh, Gerald, you got a call from Texas. Uh, so I pick up the call, you know, because the guys were all over the place. Hey, this is a, this is a Jeb from uh, Longview, Texas. We started a, a retirement home out there, and I live in Florida, and, you know, I'm getting all these calls, and finally I get so many damn calls of these damn retirement calls. I'm getting pissed. I'm telling my uh, the secretary, don't don't take on any of these calls. So I got rid of those. So 
get, getting there a holiday. So I went all the family over Thanksgiving. You know, we're from Oklahoma, Texas and Oklahoma. Don't exactly get, they get along. So all of a sudden, I start getting these Texas monthly and, and what to do in Texas, only in Texas. You know, I even got a T-shirt one time, don't mess with Texas, you know. <laughs> it immediately went in the fire pit out here. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I you know, I, I, I hooing out. So, so not only is he having all these retirement homes, he's spending money, actually spending money. he got to buy these damn, so these are nice magazines. They don't nice color paper and all that stuff. I Texas monthly, Texas outdoors, but he don't know. My wife is getting all the recipes from the uh, from the from the magazine because we have the same type of food out there. So they're coming. But anyway, Thanksgiving come, in comes my family from Oklahoma. They're sitting there on my damn coffee coffee table as a damn stack of Texas monthly. They look at me. What the hell are all those magazines doing in there? And it took me a long time to finally figure out. I happened to walk in the dressing room one way. There he is. <laughs> and I hear Ron Simmons and I hear John Layfield talking. And I said something. I walk out and all of a sudden I hear Layfield. He still hadn't figured out where all the magazines are coming from. And I, <laughs> I'm I'm I had to do some of a bitch. I finally figured it out. <laughs> it was Elvin Simmons all these damn magazines. You know, I, I brutalized Brian Blair because he sells better than anybody when I rib him. But I started sending him pizzas. Then I'd start going to any of these lead boxes that join the gym, get two weeks free. I always put Brian's name in it. I'm an old guy. I'm hurting. I can't do anything. I'm fat and out of shape. And they'd call him and promote the gyms. But <laughs> some of my favorites is like we just we just ate recently, me and Gerald for last time we sat down with Ted Webb and when Brian's not paying attention, I always put the silverware in whatever his to-go box is. And so <laughs> I loaded up a pizza box one time with all the silverware on the table. And as he's going out the front door, he's such a politician. Oh, bye everybody. Oh, the food was great. Oh, and he's shaking hands with everybody. And I yelled out, stop that man. And he turns around and he looks and the manager standing beside him and says, look in his box. He's stealing everything. And Brian started laughing. He's going, no, 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 no way. No way. He opens up his box and the pizza cutter, the, everything that was on the table was in his box. And Brian's going, oh, you know, and it was there just playing a joke on me. I just did it to him recently when we ate lunch and put all the silverware but he when i said hey did you check your box he goes oh and he ran back in to give them their silverware <laughs> so the funny when you wonder. guys referred to they own uh, like a half dozen or so uh gold's gym when gold's gym first started coming out brian and uh steve bought a bunch of franchises here in tampa what do you what did you you padlocked his briefcase to what, what was that story there it's really really great uh, well, every time Brian would come over, I'm going to make sure I grab a plug in case my phone goes down. Every time Brian would come to the gym that we had and I was there, there was a couple of things I did to him. He would say to me, like, I had, I learned this, I went through this course about memorizing people's names. And so I knew everybody's first name. And Brian would look at me and say, who's that guy over there working out? And I said, that's Bob. 
And he'd go over to him and go, oh, Bob, you look so good. Gold's Gym's so good for you. You're really taking care of yourself. And you're looking so good. I bet your wife's happy. And the guy said, my name's not Bob. And then, then he had a roll of keys that had, <laughs> had a thousand keys on it. And I would just take off the key that started his car. And like he would go and leave and he'd be out there in the car and he'd be going through the keys, looking for the key, looking for the key, couldn't find it. He'd finally come in and the other and just, you know, I constantly we had the same briefcase. And when you open the briefcase, you could change the combination by just rolling the numbers in the front of it. And so Brian would be in there, have his briefcase open. Then he would shut it. And after he shut it, he'd get out in the car and go to go somewhere and be in a light and want to open it. He couldn't get it open. And he'd fight with it and fight with it. And finally, he'd call me and he'd go, did you change the combination on my briefcase? And I'd go, of course I did. Somebody's <laughs> got to keep you young. So anyway, I mean, you know, it was just something in fun, but something that didn't. It wasn't like killing Briscoe at 30 or 40 feet. <laughs> How about shooting Barry Wendell? Oh, well, <laughs> that, that was really an accident. I didn't mean to shoot him. I was, I, I was, I was I sorry, Your Honor, it was an accident. <laughs> I, I would have really just shot him. I wouldn't have shot him in the leg. But <laughs> what happened was, is because Florida has so much wide open country here, um, at one time, I mean, you know, we were constantly going across the state. And I-75 wasn't finished from Tampa all the way around on Alligator Alley. So we used two lane roads and I always had a gun. I loved shooting guns. And uh, one time me and Barry were coming back from a town, have no idea where it was or when it was. But at the same time, we got out and Barry's standing right beside me. I mean, he wasn't in front of me at all. He was, you know, it was gun safety at its best. And I was, I was unloading and we were freaking out over the fire coming out of this nine millimeter pistol I had and it shot 15 rounds. And so I'm shooting a sign, um, a highway sign, right? So I'm bam, 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 bam. That's awesome. Bam, 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 bam. And then all of a sudden I see Barry rolling down in the ditch and I look over to my right and he's done rolled out of sight. And we've got alligators and all kinds of stuff that I was always messing with. And I said, Barry, be careful, man. There's snakes, alligators. You might get bit. And he's going, you shot me. You shot me. And I'm going to shoot you. And I thought maybe it was a, a shell that ejected and it hit him. He had shorts on. So I thought it maybe burned his leg. But it was a bullet. And when we, when we got the light on it, there's the bullet. It's not all the way in, but it's in there far enough that it's you know, buried in the skin. And I looked and the only thing we could figure out, he tells another story, but he's, you know, he smoked more pot than me. So no telling where he got this story, but he tells a story that I didn't have the safety on. That ain't how it happened. You know, on the, on the highway signs, the poles that hold them actually make a horseshoe with holes in it. So you can put them at different heights. I think I hit the post and it come back around and ricocheted and hit Barry. But I dropped him all six foot, whatever he is, went rolling down the hill. Normally, when you, shoot times, somebody, normally when you shoot somebody, don't you drop them? <laughs> yeah, well, if you shoot them with a nine millimeter, you drop them. Sometimes you just wound them. <laughs> but I happen, you know, um, 
Haku. I just did a virtual signing with him. And one of the ribs I pulled on him years ago when he first came to the United States, how did I know he was going to grow up to be the toughest guy in the wrestling business, right? He, yeah. he was only about, a, he was about 195 pounds, just totally freaked out Samoan. And he's like in the dressing room at West Palm. And I was notorious for catching stuff on the way to the towns, snakes, um, alligators, anything I could run down that crossed the road, I'd chase off and bring it. Watermelons. Yeah, now that's another story. That was a rib on me there, too. But I ran down an armadillo on the side of the road and stuck it in my bag. And when I got in the dressing room, Tonga had just come to the United States and he had one of them old gym bags that zipped across the top. And so I took that armadillo and I jammed it down in his bag. Well, I was dying. I couldn't wait for him to open his bag. I was almost going to say, hey, get something out of your bag for me. But he finally got to it. He was sitting there, and as he unzipped it, just the head popped out. It looked like a giant rat with big ears. And he freaked totally out in West Palm, and he ran towards the door that said pull, and he just bop, blew it off the wall because he tried to go through it, and he fought and fought and fought, and then he tore down the a uh, little area there for the bathroom toilets and stuff. And he was trying to get out of that dressing room. And here come the armadillo out finally. <laughs> and he got It got loose and it chased him two laps in the dressing room, which was phenomenal. If I'd have been able to film that, I'd probably have retired a long time ago. <clears throat> but he opened the door, ran out into the Coliseum, the arena part, and that armadillo ran right out after him. But he, he forgave me, thank God. But he always tells the story to everybody about, oh, every time I'd go to the dressing room, I'd wait for Steve Kern to come because I'd want to see what he caught. But I wanted to make sure he didn't put it in my bag. He said, I saw him catch snakes. I saw him catch alligators. He caught armadillo and stuck it in my bag. But, hey, the reaction you get from stuff like that that's a shock is tremendous. You, you know, we were so lucky. Armadillos are so lucky. Armadillos If we'd have had phones with cameras on them, I'd be I'd be a millionaire by now. <laughs> yeah, or dead. <laughs> <laughs> probably dead. We we were so lucky, Steve, that we had Haku down here when he was 17 years old. And he had he didn't really, John, at that time have that meanness streak in him. You know, he was still a kid. And everything was so new to him and bright. And he was like a sponge taking it all in. And his early his early days on the road with Kern, Garvin, myself, Jack, and uh, Mike, and Manny Fernandez. So that 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 kid at six, seven, sixteen, seventeen years old, he didn't have a chance to grow up to be normal. <laughs> you mentioned Jimmy Garvin. I remember catching a he had a Corvette, and we were cutting across from Lake Wales to um, Yeehaw Junction, and a huge black snake ran across the road, and it was kind of just sitting still. And I made him lock up the brakes and I ran out there and I grabbed it. I come back to the car with it. And we're riding along and he was trying to go along with it, you know, tell him what we're going to do. And he's saying, oh, man, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. And I laid it on his dash and I held on to the head and I just kept, he said, nah, don't mess with it. And then I said, you know what? This would make a great hat band. I said, what size is your head? And I wrapped the snake around his head. 
we were doing 80 miles an hour and he ran off the damn road, almost killed both of us. We went down through some palm meadows, come back up. He's going, he was screaming and yelling. I go, well, I didn't know I was going to get that kind of reaction. I'd have done that before, but I saved it for Humperdinck because I knew he was afraid of snakes. And when we got to the town, I walked in with it and we had a petition between us and I pulled the petition back and Hump was sitting in a chair and I lobbed it on him. And when I lobbed it on him, it landed perfect right across his chest. And he looks at me with this really funny face and he goes, ah, I'm not afraid of rubber snakes. And about that time, that snake started moving and he flipped totally out. I felt bad after, after it happened because he got his foot tangled in the damn folded chair and tore up his shin. But I got over it because it was funny. <laughs> when when uh, DX invaded WCW, the one order they had was, if they send out Haku, just leave. Just, yeah. <laughs> just leave. That was the only thing they were worried about was if Haku for some reason comes out, guys, just just forget it. We'll, we'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. But he's he's really such a good person. I mean, you yeah. know, I would hate. I, I, I don't love know. Haku. Yeah. Hey, you know who I just saw too was Ron. I saw Ron Simmons up in Charlotte. Me and Stan did a autograph virtual thing, and Ron was there. So I actually spent a little time. I didn't really rib Ron. Ron was already big and bad when I met him. Oh I, Lord! I was smart enough. To, I said I got to get a little bit more rapport with him before I do something to this guy. I, I, played, I played the part of Butch Reed. If somebody wanted to rib the APA, they're gonna rib me. They weren't gonna rib Ron. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody, no one rib Ron. They'd rib me, and they'd rib Butch, but they, they wouldn't rib Ron. Oh, uh, I was actually part of helping train when Ron was um, breaking in with Luger and a guy named Dewey Forte. And so I went down and got to work out with him right when he was getting started. I mean, you know, couldn't stand working out with Luger because he was so stiff, but Ron was, you know, he was perfect. He was doing good. The other guy, Dewey Forte, never made it, but. He was funny. I mean, he, they had him in a battle yeah, royal in Lakeland, and he, he came to the show, and he didn't show up, and he wasn't there. He wasn't there. And finally, somebody said, hey, I just saw Dewey Forte. I says, where is he? He says, he's sitting in the audience. He bought a ticket and come through the front door and had his bag, and he was sitting in the audience with his bag in his lap. <laughs> so they, had, they had to go get him out of the audience, and he came in, and Somebody during the battle royal said it's time to go home, and he just over went over to the door, climbed out, <laughs> left, and went home. <laughs> John, John, time. one time in Lakeland, Florida, we're having this this uh, uh, battle royal. It's a pole battle royal, and the winner of the battle royal gets to the uh, gets to the top of the uh, gets a contract with the NWA World Champion. I think it was um, Harley at the time. But Mike and Steve are the last, Mike and Steve, and uh, I think me and uh, maybe Jack. Anyway, Steve comes up with this bright eye. Mike's supposed to go over. The promoter's boss, of course, his uh, son is going over. And you got to climb up this pole to get to get the contract. So before the battle roll started, Steve got this uh, jar of Vaseline. He said, let's let Vaseline the pole. <laughs> So we, of course, Jack and I go along with it. So we put the Vaseline on the pole and they take the pole out and they lock it up to the ring post there. And it's sticking about 10 foot in the air. So when you get up on the, even on the top turnbuckle, you still got to shimmy your way up the damn pole a little bit, you know, about 10 foot to get the damn contract. So Mike had cleared everybody out. So he's climbing up. 
he gets, he grabs hold of that pole and he gets up, he comes, comes a couple, all of a sudden he gets where that oil is and he just, of course, just slides down. You know, the audience, what the hell? So Mike's doing it again. And Mike's a strong guy. He got these forearms like Popeye. Brother, when he come out, his arm was, uh, he, he finally was so frustrated he was going to stop doing it. You know, there goes a world title match. And Jack and I were looking at each other. Eddie's going to fire us. He's going to, he's going to chew us out. He's going to shoot us so, because it's his son out there. So we get Steve and we, we all run out. We put uh, we put uh, put Mike on our shoulders so he could run up. He could jump up and get grabbed. <laughs> we get in the back court. The first one Mike blames is Steve. You know, and Jack and I were sitting there. Steve, Steve threw Jack and I on the bus, and it wasn't me. Look at my hands. Look at those Indian hands over there. <laughs> of course, we're covered in vaseline and everything. But that, that's just some of the little things that this guy here used to just break the monotony in the dressing room. It was so much fun. Some of the best times ever. Hey, Steve, I was going to ask you about Stan Lane, 19 championships, first music like MTV, the first sexy guys, first hardcore matches with Moon Dog and the Sheep Herders. But this was awesome, <laughs> and I know you're busy. So, thank you for coming on and, and joining. Uh, what a pre- are you guys trying to get rid of me now? No, we're not your dog barking. I said that. I asked him about the sand lane because that's a great story. Yeah, what about Stan? Yeah, go ahead. Go, no, no. What, what, what do you want? What are you yeah, asking? Yeah, the first guys really to have music. It was kind of like uh, as far as a, a package. You know, you had the free birds playing music for interests. But as far as a package. And it came off, off pretty much, it seemed like off of MTV and Jerry Jarrett's idea. And then you guys just yes. incredible. Well, hot what it was, was it was the early 80s and, and um, MTV had just come out. And they were doing all these things to videos and, and, and music videos and stuff. And I, I don't know if it was Jerry's idea, Jerry Jarrett or who, but he said, well, we ought to do some of these. And so we did one, to, I think the first one we did was to Billy Squire, Everybody Wants You. And it got over so well because it wrestling up until that time had been the same old thing. You go into a territory, you're trying to get over. They usually put you with enhancement people and you'd mow through a few people week after week. And then you'd start climbing a ladder. It was all the same kind of, you know, repetition of getting guys over. Then all of a sudden, when we came up with this, Stan and I really didn't even show up <coughs> for about three weeks until those videos had played and it was just the perfect timing for something like that i mean to this day it's funny because you know there were so many guys that actually imitated the first uh, uh, what we did first that it was you know that imitation and the flattery thing is is good but i don't usually buy into that so what i do do is i you know like the fantastics tommy rogers and bobby fulton I always said, well, when somebody asked me, he said, well, what do you think about the Fantastics imitating you guys right down the videos and everything? I said, well, Stan and I always wanted some action figures. Those guys look like our action figures. I said, <laughs> but there ain't no way they had a lasted working with the Road Warriors. We worked with the Road Warriors for years straight in the AWA in their home. And it was, it was brutal. And I mean, you know, if I didn't have an education going into that, I mean, I'm notorious. I, I double crossed them twice and I even had to leave Puerto Rico because Hawk was so mad. He wanted to kill me. But, you know, it's like business when you're when you're told you're going to do something and somebody comes out to the ring and said, 
we're not going to do what Virginia wants to do in the AEW. We're not going to do what he wants to do. We're doing our finish. And I'm looking at him and I made the mistake because I couldn't hear that. Well, I get up close to Hawk and I said, what? And he thought I was saying what? Like a smart ass, not what? Like, what did you just say? And he double hand hit me in the chest so hard. I hit the ropes, fell down. And I think a double leg diamond had fallen. And it was on then. But, you know, Puerto Rico was another place that I double crossed them. And it's just, it was endless. You know how the business is. I always compared the business to the ocean and the Gulf of Mexico that I love the most. And I said, when I first started, I was a minnow in a sea of sharks. By the time I'd been in it a while, I was a hammerhead shark, brother. <laughs> and I was just chewing up minnows. So, you know, I know you guys got so many guests and so many other celebrity wrestlers. You're it, guys. man. You're it. Huh? You're no, it. No. You're it. No, 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 no. I'm just dropping the bucket. Sometime I'd like to talk to you when you guys got more time. And let's talk about, you know, teaching, too, because it, even though I worked 30 years and if you go to Wikipedia, they got all these titles that I held that I'm going, man, I don't even remember holding all these. But at the same time, I said, you know, some of the guys that I taught and I started my first student was Tracy Smothers. And so and he passed away last year. But I mean, you know, there's so many stories about talent, you know, and the changes in the business and, you know, the it, it evolved into what it is today, you know, and I mean, there's a lot to it. And so, I mean, teaching is something that, you know, a lot of guys think, oh, well, you're a wrestler. You could teach anybody. But teaching was something I had to experience and learn, too. I mean, when I first started teaching, I used to wrestle guys. I'd get in the ring and wrestle. I'll teach you. I'll show you how to do this. But the most misused phrase in professional wrestling is, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I heard that a million times because that's all you can say when you hurt somebody else. But it was students. I got hurt more by teaching at the beginning of teaching than I did by the guys I was working with. And, you know, I think that there should be somebody teaching people that teach. You can be the greatest worker in the world and feel like you're in your own backyard when you step in the ring. But how do you show it to somebody else from the beginning? I mean, you know, to retard yourself all the way back to when you first started, I mean, you know, I'll ask guys that are teaching. I said, so what do you teach them first? And they'll go, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what, what do you teach them? Do you start from the beginning when you say, okay, one of the first things is, is you're going to walk out of a curtain. You're going to walk off a stage. You're going to do this. But the people are judging you. Are you worthy of being paid to see? You have to carry yourself with confidence and no fear. And you, you don't need to be afraid to look at your audience. But the, one of the most important lessons you learn is when you step up on them steps and you walk to that apron, wipe your feet off. And they'll look at me and they'll go, wipe your feet off. And I go, yeah, you don't teach them to wipe their feet. And they go, no. And I said, well, to me, that was one of the most important lessons when I was first started was to make sure that you wiped off whatever was on your bottom of your boot on the way to the ring. And I mean, you know, I could go on and on about teaching, but there's so much that we could talk about. And maybe I'll get a chance to get on with you guys later, unless um, unless sure. I inherit a million no, dollars. Look, I got all I got all day for Steve Kern. I always have. Uh, well, I, 
one, one thing. You're the greatest, JBL. And you know why I loved you? I, I got to say this, but I know I'm on the podcast, so I'll take all the heat. <laughs> is I know you didn't like Tully Blanchard. And I was, an, I was an agent there when you cut that promo. And I was jerking off with every word you said. I was going like, all right, JPL. <laughs> you know, because you had, you had a tendency to say your what was on your mind and your heart. And you had no fear. And I was going like, this is a guy from the old school. I mean, you know, we used to get away with that because we knew that only a state away was a new territory. So if I got to say something, I'm going to say something, but I got to have a U-Haul at my apartment after I say it because I'm moving. <laughs> but anyway, I, I don't want to bore you guys anymore. I hadn't seen Tully in 20 years. And I walked into him the first time I'd seen him and it just exploded on me. You know, he had treated me not, I didn't think very well. He didn't remember it, but you know, that's fine. And, you know, you want me to tell you the rib I pulled on him? I could tell yes. this rib real. I could tell this rib really quick. Absolutely, it was, me, it was me and Kevin Sullivan. We we were coming out of the Lakeland Civic Center, and Tony uh, Tully was in the back, right? And he was all excited. He had two joints, marijuana joints, and he was saying, "Oh man, I got some pot. I got some pot." And me and Sullivan are looking at each other, right? And we're going, "Okay." And he says, "Man, I I, I got this this pot. You want to smoke it?" And I said, "Hold it, hold it, hold, hold it." A cop just pulled out behind us. And so me and Kevin told him, don't turn around. Don't turn around. The cop's pulling up beside us. He say, eat those joints. Eat those joints. We don't want to get caught with pot in our car. So he ate two joints that were rolled up <laughs> and swallowed and, and choked them down with a beer and then turned around. There was nobody behind us. <laughs> he really hated my guts, but he was a little leery of, letting everybody know he hated me <laughs> so anyway well, that's my telly blanchard story so i didn't get along with everybody but i did get along with what i considered good people and i know i'm talking to two of the best and that's not just because i'm on your podcast it's just i love you guys to death i mean you know randy savage and i were real close and he used to say it like this he said we're unconditional friends for life no matter when you see each other, how much absence there's been in between it, you pick up from the same place and you tell old stories and you laugh and have a good time. And that's all it's about. So good luck with your podcast. Hey, thank you, you for need- coming on. Stan. I'd love to have you on again. Talk to us some more. I love your, your thoughts about the modern day wrestling of emotion versus movement. I've heard you discuss that on several different uh, podcasts. I mean, it's just, it's really, you got a great mind for the business and, uh, I wish you were still out there sharing because you trained so much, many of today's stars. Well, I'm, I'm burnt out though, Jay, John. I, I just, I burn out a little bit because it, people don't see both sides like I do. I trained so many people and went through so many people, but they see them hear about the success stories, but they don't hear about the other stories. And, you know, being in my position, I had a lot of second generation wrestlers, including Wes, Gerald's son. And one of the deals I made with WWE is I don't hire and I don't fire. And so I didn't want to have that responsibility. But for all the success stories, I saw a lot of talent that could have been utilized. And for some reason, they were cut. And there was never an explanation to me. And when I when I used to get phone calls after they were cut, and it was young people that had passion to do it, and they were lost, where do I go from here? 
and they were turning to me because that I tried to be more of a father figure. I wasn't one of those grab your face mask, jerk your head around football coaches. I was one of those guys that was compassionate. I believe in respecting anybody that walks over that threshold and has the balls to say, I want to do this because it's all, we're all the same. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot, but at the same time, it broke my heart. And, you know, even like with Gerald, I mean, you know, him, we were both puzzled because that I just put the Florida tag team title on, on uh, Wes and, you know, was really trying to push him because he was really good. He had that passion. And so, you know, there's other ones. I mean, Dakota Darso, Barry Darso's son, never even got an opportunity. I mean, you know, Ricky Steamboat's kid. He just didn't, they, they just didn't get it into him for some reason, but you know, that was the part that broke my heart. Now, I think I should be teaching trainers personally, because when I go to NXT, I see them teaching. It's like all movement, no emotion. This is not wrestling. Wrestling is not a memorization of every move you're going to do. Because I say, if you wrestle in Tampa, it's not the same as wrestling in New York. It's not the same as wrestling in Japan. You have to adjust. And Gerald and Jack both taught me a valuable lesson. Watch the matches before you. See what the people are buying. See what's emotionally moving them in the audience. And go out there and do that. And don't repeat the moves. I must have screamed in FCW a thousand times at, at intermission. I'd walk into the talent and I'd say, why does nobody know how to do anything but grab an arm or reverse chin lock? I've just watched five matches and it's the exact same moves. You need to watch what you're doing. So anyway, but I could go on and on, but I won't. I promise. I, I didn't want to bore you guys. So no, no. thank you. Thank you. I'm honored. I'm humbled. And I, I love you both. God bless you. Happy Easter. And, and, and JBL, I know you like to hunt. I mean, you like to fish on Christmas day and things. So I'm, um, it's Easter Sunday. If you want to go alligator hunting with me, come on down and we'll, we'll go out. We'll go out and kill an alligator. <laughs> and they won't throw you off the boat. Yeah. And if you want to, and if you want to go scuba diving or spear fishing, I'm in. Don't Just keep your eye on me. I'll go fishing with Mickey Henson. I'm pretty safe with him. <laughs> well, he loves you. I wish you'd get him on the show. He loves you. He just, did his, he just did his cancer treatment. He comes here to Tampa every two months. And he, we went fishing here while he was here, as a matter of fact. I mean, but, you come out fishing at my house one day with Mickey, remember? Yeah, but Gerald won't let us eat the fish. I wear a T-shirt that says filet and release. I eat what I catch. So I don't... <laughs> anyway thank you guys so much